0: Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odours and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. Their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to a dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do this same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. I think it's fantastic that more and more people these days are becoming conscious of the food they eat. But shouldn't we be taking the same care for our pets? The health of our dogs means so much. So, no wonder owners are posting their glowing reviews of Badlands dog food and how it has improved the energy and coat of their beloved dogs. But don't take it from me. Go to badlandsfood.com forward slash frightful and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B A D L A N D S F O O D.com forward slash frightful. There is a small English village called Lower Quinton. You'll find it in the county of Warwickshire, which is often referred to as Shakespeare Country, on account of it being the birthplace of the world's most famous playwright. Shakespeare thrilled the world with high-stakes drama about love and comedy, but also murder and even witchcraft. These latter two details would spill over into reality. In 1945, when the normally quiet atmosphere of Lower Quinton was rocked by the savage murder of an elderly man. His body was discovered on a mysterious hill known for strange legends and sightings. He had been mutilated and almost decapitated. A celebrated detective assigned to the case assumed that a murder in such a small community would be relatively easy to solve. It was anything but. I'm Peter Laws. And tonight, we're heading into the mist-shrouded English countryside, where the soil is thick with legends, spells, and blood. In a case where sorcery and phantom black dogs will intertwine with a very real murder case that would baffle the finest minds of Scotland Yard. Tonight, we dig up the longest-running unsolved killing in Warwickshire, the frightful mystery of the Pitchfork Witch Murder. Charles Walton was an old and odd man. He lived in the English village of Lower Quinton, in a thatched cottage opposite a medieval church where he lived with his niece, Edie Walton. The house still stands today. His occupation was a humble farm labourer, yet locals believed that his skills went way beyond that. He was born in 1871 and would live a long life, but the ending of that life was horrific. It happened on Wednesday, February the 14th, 1945, when Walton got up early in the morning to start his work. Even at 74, he was still accepting laboring jobs. And on that day, he'd been hired by a farmer called Alfred Potter to work on one of his fields in a place called Hillground, which is in the northern side of Meon Hill. Now, Meon Hill isn't a particularly large hill. It's only about 636 feet above sea level. But its reputation, well, that cast significantly large shadows over the local villages. It was a notorious site, thought to be a place of mystery, strange apparitions and the gathering of witches. Local folk tales even said that the hill was created by Satan himself. The story goes that Satan noticed Christians constructing a Christian abbey nearby. Incensed, the devil kicked a giant clod of earth to bury this new church. Until a saint prayed and forced the earth to drop to the ground instead, which created Meon Hill. Despite all the stories, all Farmer Potter wanted that day was to have old Walton come up and trim a few hedges in his field. So Walton left his house early on that Valentine's Day, waving his niece goodbye and thanking her for a piece of fruitcake that she'd packed up for lunch. Along with his walking stick he took two tools with him, implements that he needed for the job, a two-pronged pitchfork or hayfork, and a billhook, which is a long-handed bladed knife with a hooked end. He had no idea that in his hands he was carrying the weapons of his own murder. He headed up to the hedges on Meon Hill, out of the sight of the village, and he got to work. We know he started the job because farmer Potter said he spotted the old man at one point working on the hedges with the hook, and so Potter left him to it. Yet the hours ticked by and the shadows grew long across the lonely windswept fields. And back home, Walton's niece, Edie, had prepared her uncle an evening meal after his hard day at work. Yet she kept looking from her window... ...watching the lane and wondering... ...where was he? And why wasn't he back yet? She waited and waited... ...until the clock turned 6pm... ...and she knew something was very wrong. She alerted a neighbour called Harry Beasley... ...and the two of them headed up to Alfred Potter's farm... ...to ask if he'd seen the old man he had hired for the day. He hadn't. And now that the wintry night was truly descending... Potter grabbed a torch and lantern and joined Edie and Beasley in the search. They trekked and hurried through the darkness toward the mysterious Mion Hill. And perhaps they feared the worst, that the old man had had a heart attack perhaps or a collapse. If only. You see, they eventually did find him up there on Mion Hill itself, though perhaps they wished they hadn't. At first, they saw a dark lump lying in the dirt. But when they leaned closer with their flickering torches, they saw a pure nightmare. It was Walter. Huh? He was lying near the hedge he'd been cutting. Now, various online sources talk about him being found face up. But I read the original autopsy report, which says that he was found lying on his side with his knees and hips bent and his head had been brutally beaten with his own walking stick. Now, if you watch YouTube videos of this case or hear podcasts on it, they often claim that a crucifix had been carved into Walton's chest. Yet the original pathologist report, with all of its detail, does not mention that at all. What it does talk about, however, is no less grim. The pitchfork had been rammed into his face, just below and in front of the angle of his jaw. The two long prongs pinned him down, and the coroner's report made note of the considerable depth, saying, quote, the hayfork had been plunged into his body for three quarters of its length. Walton had tried to fight off his attacker due to the defense wounds on his hands, but the old man was no match for whoever had taken this billhook, and with it, they had hacked at his throat, In what the coroner report said was three distinct blows, which severed all the main vessels of the neck. End quote. This grotesque, ragged gash was so comprehensive and deep that he was only a few millimeters away from complete decapitation. The pathologist noted that the lacerated windpipe was clearly visible. It was a horrid sight indeed for Beasley and Potter to see, but for Walton's niece, this was intolerable. She broke into hysterics, seeing the lolling head of her uncle, almost fully severed. And now cursed with hellish images that could never be unseen, they staggered back toward the village to find a telephone and they raised the alarm. Someone had brutally murdered an old man in the fields. But who and why... Local police were on the scene in 15 minutes, but they soon realised that this needed expert input. Such a savage murder required a detective superintendent from Scotland Yard in London. And so, Detective Robert Fabian was dispatched to investigate with a team of officers. Now, Fabian was well-respected for his excellent police work, so celebrated, in fact, that a decade later, his career would be traumatised by the BBC in a series called Fabian of the Yard. In 1945, he was in his mid-40s. And so this already seasoned detective assumed that perhaps the murder of Charles Walton would be a quick case. After all, this was a small, close-knit community where everybody knew one another. It couldn't be that hard to discover who Walton's enemies were. Because clearly he had at least one. His team gathered blood, hair and clothing samples and sent them all to Scotland Yard for analysis yet they didn't yield any particularly strong leads, which meant the key to solving this case rested on the testimony of the locals. Yet despite visiting every single household in both Lower and Upper Quinton, Fabian and his team were astonished at their attitude. They were shockingly unhelpful and seemed reluctant to speak. Some even shrugged off the killings, telling Fabian, ''He's been dead and buried a month now, what are you worried about?'' This weird reticence was so remarkable that Fabian would write about it in a book on his life called Fabian of the Yard in 1950. He wrote this, quote. There were lowered eyes, reluctant to speak except to talk of bad crops or a heifer that died in the ditch. But what had they to do with Charles Walton? Nobody would say. Cottage doors were shut in our faces, and even the most innocent witnesses seemed unable to meet our eyes. Some became ill after we spoke to them. Something wasn't quite right about this place. And so Fabian started looking into the local history, and it didn't take him long to realize that he was in witchcraft country, a land of wooded hills and dark legends. And this community was steeped in superstition and fear. Crucially, Fabian was given a book by a local policeman called Alex Spooner of Warwickshire CID. And the book was called Folklore, Old Customs and Superstitions in Shakespeare's Land. And so Fabian through this book and others learned that just two miles away from the village were something called the Rollwright Stones. This is a circle of prehistoric standing stones which are older even than Stonehenge Built in around 2,500 years BCE, the stones have attracted a rich and eerie supernatural reputation, including tales of fairies. But it is best known as a site for witchcraft rituals. God. Local legends even said that the Rowright stones had not always been stones at all. Instead, a Dutch king and his soldiers had been cursed by a witch who turned them into the very stones that stand there and still stand there to this day. You know, it's said at night that these stones come alive again and turn back into the cursed knights who join hands in a mad whispering dance on the hill and that anybody who happens to see this will immediately go mad or drop dead. And so tales and fears of witches were a natural part of the conversation in this village, even in the relatively advanced age of 1945, the era of the atomic bomb. As Fabian dug deeper into this history book and others, he was amazed to discover a murder case from 1875, which was eerily, shockingly similar to what happened to old Charles Walton up on the hill. This old killing happened in a village called Long Compton, which is just over the hill from the Rollwright Stones. Back in 1875, a woman called Anne Turner was brutally killed. And like Walton, she had been in her 70s. But even more remarkable was the manner of her death. She had been found with a pitchfork rammed into her and a billhook had been used to slash her throat in the shape of a cross. The killer back then was a young man called John Haywood. He had been known as the Village Idiot, and he had become convinced that this old woman, Anne Turner, was one of 16 witches who stalked the lanes of Longcompton, about a third of the village agreed at the time that witches were indeed a menace in the area, but Heywood was convinced of it, and he believed that Turner had bewitched him, and so one night while she was out buying bread, he murdered her with a pitchfork. And the distance between these two murders, between Lower Quinton and Long Compton, was a mere 2 miles. Fabian also noticed another detail in the case files. Haywood was convinced that Turner had cursed the crops, which had been terrible that year, another reason that he had killed her. Intrigued, Fabian started to wonder, if a pitchfork murder had been preceded by bad crops in 1875, what were the crops like leading up to the murder of Walton in 1945? This was, after all, the final year of the war, And the last five years had left this area depleted of resources and manpower. Well, he learned that the crops of 1944 had been terrible. And this current year, 1945, had been way too warm and wet for a good harvest. Armed with this fresh information, Fabian started to wonder if this might not be a domestic argument or a disagreement after all, but it might be connected with witchcraft or at least the fear of it. But why on earth would anybody believe that this old man was a witch? Well, it didn't take long to discover evidence that there was something very different about Charles Walton. In life, Charles Walton was, by all accounts, a rather unusual man. He was reclusive and didn't spend a lot of time with others and while he made his living from working the land the rumors were rife that he had more esoteric skills walton was fabian discovered a clairvoyant he had the supernatural ability to perceive things unseen or events in the future villagers also said that they had seen walton leaving his thatched cottage at odd hours heading up to the roll right stones They believed he was going up there to watch the witchcraft rituals perhaps even to participate but it was also said that walton had another paranormal skill he could talk to animals particularly birds who he could communicate with and tell where to go with all this rumor and gossip it meant that if anybody saw him walking the crooked lanes of the village they might be tempted to keep their distance and out of earshot they may well see the elderly farmhand and whisper the word warlock or witch. Walton even used to breed toads, which in itself is a pretty strange thing to do. And the type he bred were called natterjacks. These rare animals have a distinct yellow stripe down their back, but they are particularly distinguishable because of the way they move. They don't hop, they run. It's why they have been nicknamed running toads. The fact that Walton carefully bred these Natterjack toads did not help his dubious reputation in the village. After all, toads and frogs had long been associated with witches. And influential books like the witchcraft hunter's manual, the Malleus Maleficarum, spoke of Satan gifting witches with animals who could spy on the witches' enemies or even take flight during the witch's Sabbath. These animals were called familiars, and one of the most common seen in witchcraft were frogs and toads. In a book on the Walton murder, a local at the time even made this report, that Charles Walton would sometimes tie his toads to tiny toy plows and would let them run through the fields. Why would anybody do something so bizarre? Well, some found answers in previous cases of sorcery, like in 1662 when a witch in Scotland called Isabel Gowdy confessed to tying toads to miniature plows her reason was to curse the ground and turn the soil sterile Fabian was a man of the city yet here in rural Warwickshire he started to wonder 70 years earlier Anne Turner was murdered with a pitchfork for cursing crops could Charles Walton have met the exact same fate the author Colin Wilson explores this idea in the book The Occult suggesting that the killings could well have been rituals in themselves He lists cases where suspected witches were blooded. This is where their power was thought to be neutralized by slashing them open and making them bleed. For example, in 1643, parliamentary forces happened to witness an old woman walking in Newbury. The shocking part was that she was walking on the river, on the water. Some argue that this was just a trick or that she was simply walking on stilts but the officers were horrified and took no chances. They raised their guns and they shot her, but afterwards they were sure to retrieve her body and slash her forehead open to make sure that the power would leave her body through her blood. Fabian also discovered that the time of the killing might be linked to the rituals of the Druids. Walton was killed on Valentine's Day, which also happens to be Ash Wednesday. Yet in addition to that, it was the time when the ancient druids would traditionally make blood sacrifices for good crops. If the earth had no life in it, then lifeblood could be shed back into it again. To Fabian, it was starting to look like Walton was either murdered as a punishment for cursing crops with witchcraft or as some sort of blood sacrifice to ensure better crops. Fabian was a hardened and experienced police detective, so tales of phantoms and witches may have seemed to him like something from another age. But out there on the misty hills, as the investigation went on, even he started to experience strange and inexplicable events. Can you remember that book the Warwickshire policeman had given Fabian on the legends and superstitions of Shakespeare country? Well, the London detective had already discovered the murder case of Anne Turner in that book. But then he read an eerie story about a young boy that astonished him. Many years ago, a young ploughboy had been up on Mion Hill when he witnessed an eerie sight. He saw a phantom black dog padding across the dark, misty slopes... Now, phantom black dogs were, and still are, an important feature of Warwickshire legend and folklore. And this young boy witnessed this phantom black dog on Mion Hill for two nights running. But then on the third night, when he saw it again, something changed. The dog stood onto its hind legs and transformed into a woman. Rumours of phantom black dogs roaming the countryside are well known in legend and folklore. And as we've heard in previous episodes of Frightful, these spectral beasts are often seen as portents of death. And sure enough, the plowboy's sister died a few days later. Now, this would all just be an interesting, spooky folk tale, But for one spine tingling detail, when Fabian read the name of this plowboy, he couldn't believe it because the young lad's name was Charles Walton. The same boy who some 70 years later or so would become the victim in the very case he was investigating. So Fabian pored over the account of this phantom dog sighting. And in the account, young Walton claimed that on the night he saw this dog become a woman, he was given the gift of clairvoyance for the first time. But then there's another eerie detail that makes this sound even more potentious. You see, when he was young, he told people that not only had he seen the dog turn into a woman, there was an extra feature that did not make sense at the time. She was decapitated. This dog woman had no head. Had a young Charles Walton really been given the gift of future seeing and in that same moment saw a glimpse of his own fate almost 70 years into the future? Where his own head would be almost fully severed, like the vision. It was also said that while Walton developed the ability to speak to animals, possibly even toads, there was one creature that Walton could not speak to, and that was dogs. There was something about dogs in this case. And in a sinister turn, phantom dogs would even start to appear during Fabian's investigation itself. Detective Fabian was out on Mion Hill one day, gathering evidence, when he suddenly noticed something. He saw a black dog running down the hill. A farmhand was running after it. He watched the dog run out of sight and then approached the farmhand, saying... Why are you chasing that black dog? And the farmhand looked suddenly afraid, saying, What dog? I saw no dog. On that same day, one of the police cars was driving along the road when it heard a strong thud. The officers got out to find that they had run over a dog. There were even reports that during the investigation, a black dog was found hanging from the branch of a bush by its collar. Very close to where Charles Walton's corpse had been found. Intriguingly, this was around the time of the Roman feast of Lupercalia, which was traditionally a time when dogs were sacrificed to ensure a good harvest. Despite all of these weird discoveries and events, the investigation into the murder continued. But even though Fabian's team took 4,000 statements, the locals were simply too reluctant to share what, if anything, they knew. And to everybody's surprise, the respected Fabian of the Yard, who would go on to become a famous writer of true crime, had to leave Warwickshire in defeat. It would become known as the case that foiled Fabian, and it remains unsolved to this day. 25 years after the murder, Detective Fabian would offer this warning in his book, Anatomy of a Crime. Quote, I advise anybody who is tempted at any time to venture into black magic, witchcraft, shamanism, call it what you will, to remember Charles Walton and to think of his death, which was clearly the ghastly climax of a pagan rite. So, who did kill Charles Walton with a pitchfork and a billhook on Valentine's Day 1945, and why? Well, we can only speculate... The closest Fabian got to a suspect was Farmer Potter himself, the man who had hired Walton that day, but there wasn't enough evidence to charge him. Whether Charles Walton was a witch with powers over animals and crops is impossible to say, but in many ways it's irrelevant. Even if he wasn't a witch, the point is that somebody, or perhaps an entire community, may well have thought he was a witch. And for a community ravaged with five years of World War II and the prospect of another terrible harvest, it may have been too much for some. So was this strange old man executed in punishment for hexing the land with toads? Or was he the victim of a pagan sacrifice offered as a bizarre blood offering by somebody calling on the ancient power of the Druid gods? We do not know what happened on that February morning in 1945. What we do know, however is that the events of that day will still potentially be in the living memory of some of the locals of Lower Quinton. Indeed, even as recently as 2014, a BBC news team visited the village to question locals on the case. The young reporter assigned to the story made some fascinating and worrying comments about it. Quote, The events of that Valentine's Day are still fresh in the minds of the villagers. The strangest thing was that everyone I spoke to was expecting to be asked the questions. No one thought to ask why I was there, as they were clearly prepared for an inquisition at any time. And I do mean prepared, too. After a number of very similar conversations with different people, I started to feel I was facing a community response. It seemed that it has long since been decided how to act when people arrive asking questions in Lower Quinton. The people I spoke to were friendly, but impenetrably tight-lipped. And the landlord of the local pub, the College Arms, told a reporter this. I can't talk to you about that. After 17 years of running this place, I know that there are some things we don't talk about. And similarly, the owner of the village store said, People don't talk about it. It's a closed subject. Those that would know about it are gone, except one who's in hospital and another that's in a nursing home. All the others have gone or passed away. Could there really only be one or two folks left who know who rammed a pitchfork into the wrinkled face of Charles Walton? Isn't it reasonable to think that some elderly folks in that village, perhaps struggling with guilt, might have shared the truth with their children or grandchildren who know the answer today? It's possible, but for now it seems the village is keeping its secrets as is the land on which the murder happened. Meon Hill still stands as a windswept lonely space where witches are said to roam each night. Though in 2021, the Stratford-upon-Avon Herald reported that developers were looking at the hill and deciding to look into the land where Walton was murdered too. They said it would make an ideal spot on which to build a new estate of residential houses. And what of poor old Charles Walton? Is he remembered in the village? Hardly. He almost seems to have been actively forgotten. There doesn't even seem to be a proper grave for Walton in the local cemetery. Just a small, barely noticeable stone with the initial CHW carved onto it. Someone with local knowledge claimed there had been a stone, but that a relative of Walton had destroyed it because of the media visiting every year on Valentine's, the anniversary of the murder. We can't know what happened, but the silence is true enough, and it looks set to continue. Perhaps the only way of knowing is to trek up to the spot on Meon Hill and wait for the ghost of the Phantom Hound to lead the way. But until then, the case of the Witchcraft Pitchfork murder will continue to be the oldest unsolved killing in the history of Warwickshire.